You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good morning, Redemption Hill Church. If you got your Bible, you can open it up to Acts 2. If you're a guest, thanks for being here. Um, just to get you up to speed, we're going through the book of Acts. <laughs> And if you're flipping through your New Testament and you get to Acts, you realize, oh, there's 28 chapters. So does that mean you're going to be in Acts for like a long time? The answer is, well, yeah, we will be. Um, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, I think. I think going through the Bible, going through books of the Bible is a, a way that you can't avoid, you know, certain topics that are easy to avoid when you have people preaching. Um, but it's a God's word to us. So everything in the book of Acts and every other book of the Bible is applicable to us. And so there's... A lot to be gained as we go through books of the Bible. Um, I don't mind going through, um, you know, mini sermon series as well. And I, I say that because as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to get to Christmas and we'll do a short sermon series on Advent. And then I'll go through the book of Jonah um, in the spring. That'll be just another mini break as we go through Acts. And I'm, I'm toying with this idea of, go, of doing one more small um, kind of short sermon series on Christianity and politics. I'm not sure what I'm going to call it, but what does it mean to be a Christian and to, you know, engage in politics? And we're all in Iowa, so, you know, the election season, election cycles heating up again, as it does every four years here. And so we need to be thoughtful about what it means to be first a Christian, but also living in America with the political system being what it is and all that kind of stuff. What's, how do we, how do we respond? How do we, how do we act? And so, um, I'm thinking that's going to come, you know, before the election in 2020. So that's kind of just a general overview, especially if you're a guest and kind of wondering what's going on and how, where we going and things like that. But as it pertains to today, um, we're in Acts 2, starting in verse 42 taking it all the way to the end of the chapter. So here's God's word for us this morning. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many signs, excuse me, many wonders and signs were done through the apostles and All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing all the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you um, ever attended a church prior coming to Redemption Hill Church? I don't, I don't make that assumption, you know, everyone walk, who walks in this, through these doors has been to church before, but if you have, <clears throat> um, I have a question for you. Uh, what kind of words would you use to describe that church? You know, you went to XYZ Church, maybe you just visited one time, or maybe you were a long-standing member, or maybe you were there just for like a cup of coffee or whatever. How, how would you describe that church? What would you say? 
you know, there's been multiple times that I've uh, interacted with other Christians since moving to, you know, the, the Des Moines Metro. And, you know, I meet people and, you know, I go to this particular church and I'm always interested in, in this in asking that question. Like, tell me about your church, you know, how would you describe it? And I hear some good things. I hear, hear good things like, hey, I, uh, the, my pastor preaches from the Bible. Um, they love the gospel of Jesus Christ. They love telling people about the gospel. Uh, things I love to hear. Uh, I hear other things, you know, more innocuous stuff like, um, you know, it's a pretty hip church, pretty trendy. I really connect with the pastor, you know, um, the music's really awesome or w whatever. Uh, none of that necessarily wrong. Um, but, you know, when you ask that question, the, 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 the uh, responses can be numerous, right? Like more than the sand on a seashore, numerous after all, two people can be in the same church, but can walk away with a very different perspective of what they experience because of what they're looking for. I think it's fair to ask the same question about Redemption Hill Church. Uh, let, let's say you're hanging out with family and friend over the holiday, over like Thanksgiving or whatever, and um, one of your family members you know, simply ask, hey, tell me about Redemption Hill Church. How would you answer the question? How would you describe what it is like to attend Redemption Hill Church? And let's make, make no mistake about it. We all come to this church with preferences, like preconceived ideas and experience, expectations that shape how you describe the church. Like, let's not be naive to that. We all, we all come here looking for something or ex wanting to experience something. <laughs> I'm not naive to that. And you shouldn't be either. We, we, I get it. But what I'm going to submit to you this morning is that the Bible helps us to see what we should look for in a local church, which hopefully informs how we respond when someone asks you, asks you to describe Redemption Hill Church. What we read in Acts is that what we are devoted to reveals how we're going to describe this church. What we are devoted to as a church reveals what we value most. Um, what we read from Acts 2, um, verses 42 to 47, is that a Holy Spirit-filled New Testament church, a Holy Spirit-filled New Testament church is devoted to teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. It's devoted to being committed. All these marks of the New Testament church cultivate an atmosphere of praise to God and genuine love that extends to one another, right? You know, as this church continues to grow, not just numerically, but in our love for God and love for others, we don't need to reinvent the wheel of what it takes to grow. We don't need the latest, greatest, you know, uh, church growth book, although ideas from others can be really helpful. What we need more than anything is to look at God's word, and as it pertains to today, we need to look at the book of Acts, Acts and ask, what would it have been like to attend church right after Pentecost? How would they describe their church? 
What were they devoted to? Because how they would describe the church is how I want us to describe this church. Remember, two weeks ago, we saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost was prophesied by Joel, then then John the Baptist, and then by Jesus. Pentecost fueled something new that was happening in redemptive history. I also said two weeks ago that Pentecost is like a signpost in God's redemptive plan. Uh, It's a big deal. Pentecost is a huge deal. It's not just a footnote in the book you're reading. But God has done something significant at Pentecost. Um, Last week, we saw... Peter explaining the significance of Pentecost. You know, we kind of this hanging Chad two weeks ago. Like, what do we do with this now? We got this. And Peter's like, well, I'm going to explain it to you. And so Peter does that. And in addition to, he explains um, how the Old Testament shows us the gospel of Jesus Christ. So not only does he address the question, what's going on with Pentecost, but he fills it out by saying, well, while we're in the Old Testament, let me just show you that it's Jesus that we read about in the Old Testament. You know, when we went through Peter's Pentecost sermon, it may have felt like we blitzed through it, um, 28 verses in all, but here today we slow down a bit and look at these six verses that round out this chapter. So after tongues of fire, people speaking in tongues, uh, people speaking in languages that they did not initially know, and then Peter's sermon, we receive a glimpse Today, we receive a glimpse into what it would have been like to be a Holy Spirit-filled local church right after Pentecost. In other words, our devotion as a church takes on a certain flavor we see today. Our devotion as a church has a, like a specific aroma. You walk in and you, just, you smell something like, wow, that's different. Never smelled that before. What we see today is that the local church is unlike any other organization or humanitarian community. You know, there, there are a lot of organizations out there, obviously, a lot of businesses, a lot of clubs, which come together, like, around common interests. But our devotion as a church is unique from all that. And the flavor and aroma is a result of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost. So let's take a local, uh, closer look at what it means to be a post-Pentecost New Testament church. Verse 42 gives, the f- gives us four marks of the church, and then we're going to look at a few other marks that are, um, that are past verse, uh, excuse me, verse 42. Go back to verse 42. And they continually devoted, you'll notice on the screen there that I bracketed continually, that, that word is not in your translation, but I put it there because I think that's what that Greek word is, is um, really telling us. They were constantly devoted. They were continually devoted. They were just kind of doing this all of a sudden after Pentecost. And what were they devoted to? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and prayer. So let's take them all one by one. The first mark of this New Testament church is, is devoted to teaching, specifically the apostles' teaching. And so think about what's going on in Acts 2. Over 3,000 people have been saved, and now they're what? They're attending kindergarten, basically. Um, to grow, they needed to learn. They needed to be taught what it means to be 
Christian. They need to be taught what it looks like to live together in a, as a local church. Like, now what? <laughs> Pentecost happened. You know, what? What's going on? What do we do? A, a question we need to answer is what were the apostles teaching? Like, what? What was the class? What was the um, the uh, class subject? Right. What were they teaching these kindergartners? I think there's two good answers uh, which are connected. As we, see with, as we saw with Peter's uh, Pentecost sermon, the teaching of the apostles is to see God's redemptive plan through Christ in the Old Testament. So that was last week's sermon. Don't need to belabor that point. If you weren't here um, last week for that sermon, go to that and you'll see what I'm saying. That's, that's part of the apostles' teaching. God's redemptive plan through Christ in the Old Testament. Second, the apostles' teaching is the continual unfolding of God's plan as it's laid out in the New Testament. So devotion to the Bible, like it, it's study, being, you know, studying the Scriptures, digging into the Scriptures, wrestling with the Scriptures. Devotion to the Bible and what the Bible teaches is a mark of the church. Uh, Jude, the author, author of the New Testament book that bears his name, says he wrote to a church because I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. What Jude is saying is that the apostolic teaching that was delivered to the first century Christians is the same teaching that we are to contend for, that we are to wrestle with, that we are to learn the apostles' teaching has been passed down to us, and this teaching has been canonized, which means the church needs to be a word-centered church. It's God's word to us. We're a Bible-centered church. So when your friend asks you to describe Redemption Hill Church, I hope you say that we are committed to God's word. Not because I say so. Listen, listen to me here. Not because I say so. Because that's actually what you experience on a Sunday morning. Does that make sense? Why is um, devotion to the uh, apostolic teaching revealed in God's redemptive, um, revealed in God's word important? It's important because the Bible tells us about God. It explains our sin problem, which is an offense against God. The Bible tells us how a worthless sinner can be reconciled to a holy God. The Bible tells us that out of love, God sent his one and only son to redeem his people through, the, through his atoning death. And there is so much more the Bible tells us. Listen, when a church or denomination moves away from commitment, from a commitment to the inerrant authoritative word of God, which I think is the apostolic teaching here, it moves away from God and the message of the gospel. You read church history, you see that all the time. You see that all the time. The moment a church or denomination moves away from God's word, from understanding it as authoritative and inerrant, they begin to move away from God and they move away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, just a quick land, you know, survey of the landscape of American Christianity proves that to be true as well. You know, I, I'm on a more personal note. When I permanently come out from behind this pulpit or die, whichever comes first, 
my hope in prayer is that the next pastor be devoted to God's word so that he will stoke your devotion for God's word. So that was the first mark. Devotion to the apostolic teaching, which I take to be a devotion to God's word. Second mark listed is fellowship. I, I love the Greek word behind fellowship, koinonia. Uh, this is the first time in the New Testament where this word is actually used. Uh, quite literally, the term implies a commitment to one another. Koinonia isn't about talking about loving one another. Do you know what I'm saying there? It's just not about talk. Koinonia acts upon love toward one another. So I hope you get what I'm what I'm get get what I'm saying there. Koinonia is about what we are doing, how we interact with one another in community. Koinonia it's used several times in the New Testament. Just listen to how it's used a few of these times. First uh, Corinthians one nine, we read that believers are called into koinonia or fellowship with the Son of God. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fourteen, a benediction I use a lot here. Christians are called into the fellowship or koinonia of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 1.5 implies Christians are called into fellowship or koinonia with one another. A little bit of what we're talking about right now. 2 Corinthians 8, koinonia is used to describe the collection Paul was taking from the church in Jerusalem. So biblical fellowship is connected with how we give. Get that? Koinonia is used to describe the intensity and intentionality of relationships in the church. Koinonia means there is a strong sense of responsibility one person in the church has toward another person in the church. You know, in churches, the word koinonia, in some churches, not all churches, has been used... Uh, and watered down, you know. Uh, let me let me um, explain my point by <laughs> using another pastor to explain the point. Uh, pastor Kent Hughes rightly describes biblical fellowship or koinonia. Fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. It's not just punching cookies. It does not take place simply because we are in the church hall. Right? He's telling you what, it, what it's not. Now, here's what he says what it is. Fellowship or koinonia comes through giving. True fellowship costs. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. Right? Here's an example of how I've thought about, you know, koinonia or, or fellowship. Um, there is an intensity, an intentionality um, that a athlete, an athlete can have um, participating in a team sport. So, you know, I, I think about this in the context of my own life, you know, basketball and football, played those team sports and loved it. Um, and what do we see oftentimes with team sports? Like, everyone has each other's back. The team was committed to me, and I'm committed to the team. You know, when, when, a, when a player falls down, right, and they've given it their all, but they're at their end, what happens? A, a teammate comes along, brings encouragement, or even just throws the person over their shoulders and takes them to the end, to, to wherever they need to go, whatever the goal is. They did it together as a, as a team. There's an intensity 
and intentionality with how they interact with each other. Even today, the, the athletes with the right perspective of life, you see this all the time in an interview, you can see it. You can see the, you can see the athletes who, like, who get it and the ones who just, they're into something else, usually themselves. But the athletes who get it, they say they give 100% of their energy and effort for who? The rest of the team. They're willing to make sacrifices for the sake of who? The team. The church needs to be this times a hundred. Our devotion to fellowship is an indicator of our love for one another. You can't see it from the English language, but as we peel back the onion of koinonia a bit more, we see it's used to describe what Christians have in common. Look at verse 44-45. And all the and all who believed were together, had all things in common, same Greek word, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing uh, the proceeds to all as they had need. So Christian fellowship means having all things in common, koinonia, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I, I have a couple thoughts regarding these two verses um, because these particular verses have been used, um, they've been taken out of the context, they've been used to, uh, to kind of overlay a political system, right? And I'm not getting into politics, not saying what's right or wrong, I just want to know what God's Word says, how to rightly interpret God's Word. So, I have a couple thoughts. These verses do not mean you are required to sell all your possessions. There's no command here. There's no like imperative, Greek imperative here. Uh, further, as we read throughout the New Testament, Christians did have personal possessions, like the homes people met in for church. That's one point. Also, the selling of possessions and belongings was voluntary. Uh, when a need in the church was identified, individuals in the church freely moved toward the need out of love. I mean, think about it for a moment. What, re what reveals your heart and devotion to the fellowship more? When you are told to do something or when your love for another person compels you to do something? Parenting is a great example of what I'm getting at, right? There's a difference between, you know, me as a father commanding my child, hey, share the toy. Yeah. <laughs> Share the toy, command, right? Between that and when I'm, you know, sitting back watching my kids play and I see them freely sharing their toys with one another. You know, my face beams when I see how love motivates my kids to freely give their things away to their <laughs> siblings or other kids. There are times when God the Father commands, you know, Ten Commandments, right? When you read the Pauline epistles, they're full of commands and imperatives. But here, the emphasis is on voluntary actions. When we um, practically care for one another, God wants us to be motivated by self-sacrificial love for one another. I have one more observation about the importance of uh, fellowship. I do not think it is a stretch to say that every person has been created by God for fellowship. Is it, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not making a Christian principle, but more of like a, a humanitarian principle or anthropocentric principle. We, we've all been created for community. And to one degree or another, or another 
everyone's looking for, like community or fellowship, whatever word you want to use. When the Powers family still lived in, you know, the Twin Cities, um, you know, I was pastor on staff at Sovereign Grace in Burnsville. Uh, the gym that I went to was just like right down the road, right? And uh, as is with me, um, I'm trying to make friends, <laughs> talk to guys, um, looking for gospel opportunities, whatever. And I started um, striking up a relationship with one guy in the gym. He actually worked there, but he also worked out there. And um, I asked him one time, you know, why do you come to the gym? Like, I saw him every time I was there. So that got me thinking, like, if I see him every time that I'm here, I bet he's here a whole lot more um, than just when I come. And his response was interesting. He told me the gym was his community. The gym is the place where he has his family. His candid response was really instructive for me. His response caused me to think about what fellowship looks like in the local church or what it should look like in the local church. I mean, the church could offer him a satisfaction that no gym could ever offer. Can we be a church who meets the emotional, practical, and spiritual needs of other people who yearn for fellowship? Can we be a church that cares for the needs of each other so that like, when somebody on the outside kind of peers in, they're like, whoa, I don't see that kind of loving care in the world. This is unique. I want, I want to experience that. You know, I, I think we are that kind of church, and I think by God's grace, we can continue to grow um, to be this church even more, to be a church that really demonstrates koinonia so to one another. Next, twice in our passage, the breaking of bread is mentioned. We read it in uh, verse 42 and then again in verse 46. Here, there is some debate about what breaking of bread means. Um, you know, is it a community meal that um, they're talking about? You know, we're all kind of gathering around the dinner table. Is it in reference to the Lord's table? You know, that's language often used uh, throughout the New Testament. And uh, I tend to think both. Uh, to be frank, anytime I come across the breaking of bread, like what we read, for example, like think um, when Jesus fed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fish, it said that Jesus broke bread. When I, when I run to that, I can't help but see the symbolism of communion. So I see that all over the New Testament. And I do see it again here. Now, was it also a meal? Absolutely. What does the text say, right? We, we can be text-driven um, Bible readers, right? Um, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. While they were eating spiritual food, they were also eating physical food. So it's been asked of me before, right? And maybe just casual conversation or whatever. Um, we we've actually see this in some house church movements. It's been asked to me, should we go back to celebrating the Lord's table while eating a meal? And my, my answer is, well, perhaps. If the context allows for it, or if we're forced into it because of the context, if, if our context forces us to that. Uh, but such a question misses the point of what's going on. It doesn't matter what context you celebrate the Lord's table, provided it is done in the context of the local church, and it's done in with faith in Jesus Christ. If a church in China celebrates the Lord's table in a home like we see here, praise God. And usually the 
have to do that in a home out of fear of being persecuted by the government, right? And they do it in a home around a meal. Praise God. If the Lord's table is done in the context of this room that is being rented out from another church, praise God. Regardless of the context, the breaking of bread is always an opportunity to remember the atoning sacrifice of our Lord. It's an opportunity to receive spiritual food, along with physical food, with glad and generous hearts. Therefore, whether it is around a dinner table or a more formal gathering like Sunday morning, we want to be marked by thankfulness, thankfulness that we have for God when we break bread. There's a fourth mark mentioned in verse 42. Uh, Prayer. Prayer is not qualified in today's passage, but we saw the importance of prayer in the early church in Acts 1. All these with one accord, so together, as a community, they were, here's the same Greek word, uh, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Um, I talked a lot on this and the importance of prayer when we went over this verse, so I won't um, belabor the point here, but just make an observation. What connection can we make between the two passages? Again, there's an emphasis of prayer being done in in the fellowship, in the koinonia. The early church was not content with just talking with one another in fellowship, but they are they wanted to talk to Jesus together. Here's an example, another example of prayer in Acts. In Acts 9-11, we read it when Paul was converted. And what does Paul do right away? Right? Paul was praying to God. We should take heart that Luke, who wrote Acts, continually mentions the importance of prayer in the local church throughout this book. Prayer is an act of devotion. When we gather, we are devoted to prayer. In addition to being devoted to the Bible, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, we're devoted to prayer. All these marks cultivate an atmosphere of praise, verse 44, to God and genuine love for each other, right? There's one more mark of the New Testament church that I I want to show from the text. It's not listed in verse 42, but we see it explained further down in our text. Uh, Look at verse 46 again. Do you see the commitment of the Holy Spirit-filled fellowship? They ate together. They worshiped together. They met day by day, attending the temple and hanging out in homes. The early church, right, what what are they doing? They were constantly in each other's lives. There was a zeal and passion to praise God, verse 47. And, they, and they're doing it together. They were doing it together. Here's how I picture uh, the first century church in our 21st century context. Uh, it'd be like me saying, hey, you all want to go to church on Sunday? And everyone's like, yeah, we're all in. We're going on Sunday. You all want to get together in the homes, community groups, right, Wednesday night? Yes, we're all going because we value and we're devoted to the fellowship and meeting together. We're committed. So we're going to a community group. Y'all want to come over to my house? I got, I'm going to throw some dogs and some burgers on the grill, some sweet corn on the grill. We'll, we'll cook those bad boys up. My wife makes a, a really good chocolate cake. Y'all want to come over? You know, We're going to break bread around the grill. Y'all want to come? And it's like, everyone's like, yeah, absolutely. I'm in 100%. The answer is always yes. Why? Because gathering together is a priority. At least it should be a priority. It's, it's a commitment we have 
toward the local church. Listen, I'm not trying to chide here at all, but I want to explain the tragic change that has taken place in American Christianity. It used to be that a person devoted to the fellowship, who were, who's committed to the fellowship, showed up on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and then the various activities in between. Not exactly what's going on in Acts 2, but nonetheless, a sense of devotion to the church. Today, coming to church once a month is the norm, and you know people come to church to kind of assuage the conscience. They just need to feel good, right? We allow other things to get in the way of what God tells us should be the top priority, right, in terms of what we're committed to. You know, church is like being treated like a gym membership. <laughs> Have you ever um, got a membership, like, it's like Thanksgiving, and you, you're like, I need to get a gym membership. And then the only times you really use that gym membership is like right after a holiday or New Year's when you feel guilty. <laughs> it's like, you're going to, Punch your gym membership card, and then you don't really ever go back, right? Church is being treated like that. It's only when there's guilt, then the, the membership card is being used. Now, God doesn't want you to be guilted into attending church. Don't hear that, even though I think church can be used that way. God does, not, God does want you to be a part of of the community so that you experience the joy and blessing that comes with being a part of a local church. Now, it's worth pointing out that the communities in the first century look very different, you know, may stay in the obvious here, look very different from first, first century uh, America. I think it's worth pausing to consider the differences and the current barriers that keep us from experiencing deep, meaningful relationships in the church. What are the barriers now? We know that communication, mobility, and technology has made communities in many ways more connected than ever, right? Even though people, uh, there's distance between us, we're actually becoming connected in many ways. I mean, you can get on an airplane and in 24 hours, you can be having dinner in Hong Kong, right? That is, in, in terms of history, that is so unique, uh, you know, a 30-minute drive these days used to be days of walking. You know, grab your donkey, we're going to walk. There's a lot we can celebrate and use when it comes to 21st century technology. The problem is that we have sacrificed the value of meeting face-to-face, day-to-day, because of new ways to communicate. Um, I happened to bump into an article this week um, it was reposted, retweeted, I guess, by a New York Times columnist, David Brooks. And the article said that 22% of millennials say they do not have friends. That's roughly one in five millennials. Not, I'm not talking about like best friends. Like, who are you calling your best friend? No, I'm not talking about friends. Like, basic. And I've seen other studies in Pew Research confirming the same trend. These days, you can be in the same room as a person, but because of an iPhone, you are miles apart. Technology, while it has its benefits, is not a substitute for physically gathering together and being intentional to care for the people you are with. So, honestly, the problem isn't necessarily what century you're a part of, but what you choose to be committed to or devoted to. 
if you are devoted to the fellowship, you use modern tools to bring yourself closer to the fellowship. A car is a wonderful tool to connect um, the body of Christ together, right? You live 30, 40 miles apart. A car can connect us very quickly, and that's, that's something to be celebrated. Same thing with phones. But hear this warning one more time. Modern technology is not a proper exchange from physically meeting with the fellowship. Nothing compares with sitting down with a friend over a cup of coffee to talk about Jesus. A TV screen does not compare with being in the room where we learn together, break bread together, and we pray together. If anything, we can learn a thing or two from the first century church about commitment to the local church. We live in a culture that offers a thousand excuses for you to not come to church, right? Like I was just saying, you can sit at home, turn on the TV, and watch someone preach. I know people who do that. That's church to them. It's not biblical, but it's church to them. However, when you do not come to church, to the fellowship, you don't experience the goodness of God through the teaching of God's word. You do not experience the goodness of God through self-sacrificing fellowship. You do not experience the goodness of God by exalting Christ through the breaking of bread. You do not experience the goodness of God through prayer and community. Here's what I would say to all of you and then to anyone listening to this sermon, ironically, online. Do you want to receive something different? Are you striving to experience something from the world, but deep down you know the world can't help you? Be committed to the local church. Stop making excuses and by faith go all in on God's plan to build his church. Be continually devoted. You will not regret it. So, what holds all these, um, all these marks of the New Testament church together, which I think is a great question. So, I've gone on and on about what a local church should look like and, you know, the teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, etc. What holds them all together? Uh, John Piper said in, this, in his sermon on this passage from the early 90s, he said this, and I found it helpful in what ties these marks together. He said, I think the key is found in verse 43 in the phrase, Fear came upon every soul, a joyful, trembling sense of awe that you don't trifle with the God of the apostles. We all could use a, uh, a dose <laughs> of godly fear, a reverential fear that the one who created you could take you. A fear that does not cause us to hide, but to worship. A, a reverential fear that puts us in awe when we look at the Rocky Mountains and then we consider a hurricane in the middle of the Atlantic. It's a fear and awe that moves us deeper into devotion to God and to his church. The uh, prophet Isaiah knew about fear and awe. After the uh, prophet Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, <laughs> for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was a prophet in awe. What Isaiah saw and the experience at Pentecost, I grant, are unique. But I submit to you that when the Holy Spirit meets the heart and gives a glimpse of the grandeur of God, 
awe, wonder, and fear, reverential fear, invade the soul. Listen, we live in a world where people are constantly looking for community, right? People all around us are looking for places to direct their worship, to, to direct their awe. So what would it look like to be a local church committed to Christian fellowship that radiates the aroma of Christ to a watching world? If we live out this passage, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, people will be attracted to this church. Why? Because we offer someone that this world cannot offer. We worship the one, the only one, who is worthy of worship. We worship the one who puts us in awe, and his name is Jesus. And as we worship Jesus, the marks of this passage become a beautiful reflection of the one. They become a reflection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I said earlier, I'll say one last time, that a Holy Spirit-filled New Testament church is devoted to teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, prayer, and it's devoted to just simply being committed to the local church and one another. And all these cultivate an atmosphere of praise to God and genuine love toward others. I can also add that these marks of devotion cultivate a culture of awe, wonder, and praise to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray.